Good morning, College Park. I invite you to take your Bibles and go to Colossians chapter 1, verses 1 and 2, our text this morning. Today we begin the exposition and also a little bit of the background of the book of Colossians. It's going to be a wonderful journey, and uh, then next week diving into it even further on Mother's Day, which also happens to be Pentecost. So we're going to give an award to the most spirit-filled mother (laughs) who didn't sin all morning. It's going to be a big Pharisee badge, right? Don't want to miss it. It's going to be great. I'm just kidding. Verse 1 says this, Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ, Christ Jesus by the will of God and Timothy our brother, to the saints and faithful brothers in Christ at Colossae, grace to you and peace from God our Father. God our Father, We thank you that grace and peace to us comes by Christ, and by your word, grace and peace comes to us. You tell us that it's impossible to see the kingdom unless a man is born again, and so I pray today that you give us eyes to see and ears to hear. Help us to receive your word with gladness. Let it fall on soft hearts, and would you, Spirit, do what I cannot do, and that is apply the word to life situations that no one knows but are real today. So, Jesus, we want you to be exalted, lifted up, whatever fits with my words that are your heart to your people here at College Park, then drive that stuff deep. And Whatever doesn't fit, then just let it be forgotten. But at the end of the day, Jesus, let one thing be clear. You're the core. You're the center. Everything in the universe is held together by you. And to that end, we ask for your help today. In your name, Jesus, amen. So last week we looked at the reality of who Jesus is as sovereign, as supreme, as king, a firstborn, the name of all names. Uh, The Bible says that he is preeminent. Uh, The Greek word means that he's first in place, first in rank, uh, first in priority. Uh, To be very blunt, we said that, uh, you know, Jesus is the core. Deal with it, right? It's not that we make him central. He is central. The question is whether or not our lives reflect the centrality of Jesus. And uh, we don't make him Lord. He is Lord. We don't make him king. He is king. We don't make him sovereign. He is sovereign. And and the challenge of our lives, for those of us who know Christ, is that in our lives, we got to figure out how do we take the centrality of Jesus and make that work in our lives. That's why I've got you memorizing some verses, the core verses, right? Uh, so that um, you'll be able to take the word of Christ and, and you'll understand that when Paul says, you know, what the riches of the glory of this mystery, Christ in you, the hope of glory, that you realize that man, that's the heart, it's the heart of this book. I know some of you grumbled probably about the word ordering in the ESV. You're like, oh, I've started memorizing it so hard. and uh, Grow up, just keep going, right? Just, just keep working on it. Don't give up, don't quit, just keep memorizing. Next week we've got another verse. And the goal of all of this is not just to memorize. The goal is to help you to take the word of Christ and let it dwell in you richly, such that your minds and hearts will be captivated by the person and work of Christ. So the point of what we're talking about right now is that Jesus is the core. He's the core, and we've got to figure out how to make that work in our lives. And I heard from a number of you about creative ways that you're trying to help your own heart remember throughout the course of a day that indeed Jesus is the core and keeping him central. 
I walked into uh, one of our staff members' offices this week, Luke, and uh, found the way that he's applying this in his life. Uh, he's taken the uh, core thing seriously with the book of Colossians. That, that's a core ball for any of you who don't know what that is. What's he sitting on? That's something where you work your abs. And I came into his office, got Colossians written on the side. And I said, dude, you win the staff award this week. I don't know what that means, but uh, that's just great. Isn't that? So you got to figure out how to make the, the supremacy of Christ, the, the centrality of Jesus a living, breathing reality in your life. And listen, I I don't think I can overemphasize to you the importance of this issue. Let me just remind you that it was the desire for preeminence that caused Satan to fall. It was the desire to be preeminent over God that caused Adam and Eve to fall into sin. It was the desire to be preeminent when Nebuchadnezzar looks out on all that he has created, his heart is lifted up, and says something like, look what all my hands have made, and then God strikes him, puts him out in the field, he eats grass like an ox, until he gets his heart right and says, now I lift my voice and praise the Most High God. And it's a man named Diotrephes in John 3, who John describes as he always wants to have first place, and so he doesn't receive our authority, and that's the problem, is that a lot of us still have problems with authority. You scratch an adult and you'll find a junior higher still, just with different issues and different things. We don't like to bend the knee. We don't want to submit, and the supremacy of Christ strikes at the very heart of that. And Paul's pastoral concern in the book of Colossians is to help remind this church that Jesus is supreme, and their lives need to reflect that. His concern is that this church will remain faithful to who Christ is and not abandon him in any way. And this morning from the book of Colossians, we're going to figure out what Paul's concern was that led him to write this book. And then we're going to use the book of Colossians as a mirror, which is why I entitled the message, Welcome to Colossae, USA. Because I think there are some things in the book of Colossians that very much mirror the world in which we live. There are some things that that we need to think about and pray into, some stuff we just need to receive this morning and ask ourselves, God, is this true? Am I like this? Am I guilty of this? Is this Colossian heresy thing creeping into my own heart and life as well? Before we get into the Colossian heresy, I want to introduce you to some of the core players in this wonderful book. You'll notice in 1, 1, chapter 1, verse 1, we begin with the word Paul. Paul, it says, an apostle of Jesus Christ by the will of God. The book was written by the apostle Paul, if you'll remember, was a persecutor of the church. If you're new to Christ and don't know who he is, he wrote half of the New Testament. He used to be a a, a serious threat to Christianity. He was a Pharisee. He was a Jew. He received permission to persecute believers all over the world. And one day Jesus marvelously um, engaged in his life. He became a convert and then moved from the greatest persecutor to the greatest apologist for the work of Christ. Amazing. And he wrote half of the New Testament. We find here also that not only does Paul engage here, but we see that he's writing um, to the church at uh, Colossae. And also you need to know that at the end of his, his ministry, when he was imprisoned in Rome, he writes four books called the prison epistles. The book of Philippians, the book of Colossians, the book of Ephesians, and the book of Philemon. Now, Colossians, Ephesians, and Philemon all kind of go together. They probably were brought by the same courier, and Paul writes while in prison to these churches. He he sends them by the man named Tychius. 
He's referred to in Ephesians chapter 6, verses 21 and 22, and also Colossians chapter 4, verse 7 and 8. He was likely the guy who was given the instructions, Tychius, take these letters, bring them to the church at Colossae and the church at Ephesus. Now you need to know that Paul's ministry in the city of Colossae um, was such that he actually never set foot in the city. Rather, his ministry in the city of Colossae was a derivative of his ministry at Ephesus. The Bible tells us in the book of Acts that, that Paul, for, um, for a number of years, spent some time in the city of Ephesus uh, debating with people in the marketplace, uh, dealing with Jewish scholars. And as a result of his ministry there, um, Ephesians, or, or, or Ephesus rather, became kind of a ministry outpost. Uh, Paul would send people out to plant churches, and the result of people hearing uh, Paul's testimony, the work of Christ in his heart and life. The product of that was churches being planted in other regions. One of the persons sent out from Ephesus was a disciple named Epaphras. Look at Colossians 1 and verse 7. We learn of Epaphras here um, as the one who really had the effective ministry in the city of Colossae. 1.7 it says, As you have learned it, meaning the gospel, from Epaphras, our beloved fellow servant, he's a faithful minister of Christ on your behalf and has made known to us your love in the Spirit. So what happened is Paul was in prison, Epaphras came to him, and something also happened, by the way, that Epaphras also was arrested. Either he willingly put himself under arrest with the Apostle Paul, or he was actually arrested, but he couldn't go back to deliver the letter. And Epaphras was the founder, really, of the church at Colossae. And while Epaphras is visiting with the Apostle Paul, he gives him a report as to what is happening in the church. So from this outpost of Ephesus, Paul is planting churches. Epaphras goes, establishes this church, and then when he's arrested, comes and gives him an indication of what is happening, and that is what then led to the writing of the book of Colossians. It's a pastoral letter written from a jail cell to a church that Paul's never been to, whose report they've heard of by their pastor who's now arrested with him. Notice also verse 1 not only says that Paul the Apostle, but it also says Timothy our brother. Remember, Timothy was Paul's right-hand assistant. It's interesting that he mentions Timothy here, because um, there's also eight other guys with him. You'll see that at the end of the book. But Timothy stands out unique in Paul's ministry in that he had a permanent role. He was Paul's closest and most cherished partner in the work of the ministry. So we have Paul, we have Timothy, we have Epaphras, and a man named Tychius. They were all part of the constellation of people that God put into the church at Colossae. Now, what's going on in the book of Colossians? What's going on in the city of Colossae? Well, like all ancient letters, it begins with a greeting. Verse 1 says this, To the saints and faithful brothers in Christ at Colossae. A couple words. It's classic Paul here. Grace and peace, meaning God, through the Apostle Paul, is extending to them God's desire for them to be filled with everything they would need and the peace, the shalom of God. Also, he calls them saints, meaning that God, by the work of Christ, had come and made them holy. He calls them faithful, faithful brothers. He, he's, he's really admonishing them through this word that he wants them to remain faithful, because as we'll see in a moment, there were some things that were attacking the church, things that were coming in into the margins of the ministry that were causing a threat to the work at Colossae. Now, you need to know that the city of Colossae is uh, located in the Lycus Valley. It's um, a pretty nondescript city. In all intents and purposes, not a very important city. In fact, Colossians is not only written to the church at Colossae, but if you look um, later on in the book, you'll see that Paul gives instructions for this letter to be read in the church at Laodicea. 
the, the city was located just off the main road that went from Ephesus all the way to the river Euphrates. And it was uh, a city that, frankly, was probably the least influential of all of the cities that Paul ever wrote to. In fact, the only uh, claim to fame in the city of Colossae was the fact that the sides of the hills and the lush green areas of the Lycus Valley were great for raising sheep. And so Colossae became known for their sheep and dark black wool and red wool became kind of their known commodity in, the reg- in, the, in that region. Colossae, though, like most cities, was a cosmopolitan city. People from all walks of life, all backgrounds were there. It Jews, Gentiles, people from all over the world. Acts chapter 2, verse 10 tells us that when Peter preached the gospel at Pentecost, there were people from this region who were present and went back there. There were Jews that had been settled there in 2nd century B.C. by Antiochus III from Babylon. So there was a Jewish community, there was a Gentile community, and there were all sorts of uh, Greek and Gnostic philosophies within the context of this particular region. So the city of Colossae was not a very strategic city, nor was it very influential. But it was birthed as a derivative of the Apostle Paul's ministry, and the letter is written primarily to some Gentile believers who are in the middle of this city trying to figure out how to do life, how to maintain a commitment to Christ, how to keep Him supreme, and not really abandon the faith or allow their church to drift. And essentially, what Paul is addressing is something called the Colossian heresy. To understand this book, we really need to understand this concept of what exactly is the Colossian heresy. And you need to know it's a difficult challenge to figure out, because Paul nowhere in the book clearly identifies what it is that he's really fighting against. He's more giving the solutions to it, and therefore our um, understanding of what the Colossian heresy is is really a derivative of the solutions that he gives. So in chapter 2 and verse 8, though, we get a pretty good clue. Look at it. It says this, See to it that no one takes you captive by philosophy and empty deceit. Note these things. According to human tradition, according to the elemental spirits of the world, and not according to Christ. So, if we put it together, verse 8 really is key. There's something that's going on in this church where he's worried that they're being taken captive by a a philosophy, a a thinking process, a a way to look at life, and and it's got something in it that, that appears to be good, but at its heart it's really empty, and it's connected to human tradition, and it's also something that is pulling them away from Christ. So we get some clues as to what exactly is going on here. And as we talk about the Colossian heresy, some of you are going to recognize some of these things in your own world. You've probably seen hints of this. And and let me just tell you something. Do you know that nearly all heresy um, has historical roots? Meaning anything that you hear today that's heretical probably has been heretical for years. That there's not a lot of new heresy. There's not a lot of new bad things to believe in. Most bad things you could believe in have already been tried in the past and failed. And therefore, when something new comes along, one of the questions we've got to ask ourselves is this. So where was this believed before? Or we need to understand the past so we can interpret the present. 
And so we find in Colossians 2 and verse 8, and a number of other passages, some characteristics of this Colossian heresy. The first one in verse 8 we find is that it was presented as a philosophy of life, that, that you could get higher knowledge. Its focus was on the ancient and on, on a special knowledge. This, this kind of understanding that someone would come to you and say, you know what, you really you believe in Christ, that's great, but let me help you understand how you can know Him even more. There's special knowledge. It's based upon human traditions and all this old past stuff. And there was this focus on becoming something more and moving away from the simplicity of who Christ was, improving on the gospel, improving on Christ. And then look at um, verse 16. Along with this, there was this special emphasis on lifestyle standards regarding which food should be eaten and which holy days should be observed. So suddenly, these, these people are saying, you know, there's, there's not only believing in Christ, but real Christians don't do this and real Christians do do this. There's certain things that you should, oh, you can eat that, but it's not God's best. And, oh, yeah, you, yeah, you, you don't really have to do this on this particular day. But if you really want to be spiritual, if you really want to worship God, then you need to observe this holy day. And it was this subtle, personal fear of man, legalistic pressure that was coming on them to become something more than what they really were. Now, the minute that I say that, some of you are like, oh, yeah, been there. I know exactly what that is like. Grew up in an environment where, you know, you believed in Jesus, but then you had all these other things that were add-ons. And it's not that anyone ever deserted believing in Christ. No, but what they did is they added all kinds of baggage to him or baggage to you. And the idea is that you're, you're, you're somehow improving on the work of Christ or you're improving in terms of your spirituality. The third thing, and this is really tough, verse 18 says it placed a great focus on humility and the worship of angels. So what happens is there's this focus on being humble and how we're not able to really know and we need angels or we need spiritual forces to help interpret things. And so suddenly now there's this humble, mystical thing that's going on. And the result is that people are confused because after all, who could argue that humility is bad? I mean, is anyone going to say, don't be humble? I mean, that's Bible, right? And mark it down somewhere in your mind and heart that at the heart of, of all heresy, there's a nugget of truth that's believable. In fact, there's often Bible, little verses picked and chosen throughout the course of Scripture that are used and applied in wrong ways and in silly means. And what happens here is Paul says, look, these people are focused on humility, and that's why it's, it's so dangerous and, and so much of a, of a trap. And then next, verse 18, it says it created a subtle elitism. It created this, this kind of haves and have-nots. This one group that was spiritual and this other group that was really spiritual. Ever been in a church like that? We got this group of people that they're like the really special people because they do this. And, and here's the thing. You remember, uh, C, not C.S. Lewis, Dr. Seuss. I did that in the first service. I said that I confused C.S. Lewis and Dr. Seuss. And I was determined I wasn't going to do it again. But here I did it again. You know that Dr. Seuss book, Stars on Dars? Remember that? We got one group of people with stars and another without. That's what it becomes. That church becomes like stars on dars. If you don't know, go to the library and have your kids read it to you. So you got this group of people. They're special. They're elite. They got higher knowledge. They're, they're humble. They, they, they understand God in ways that other people don't. And suddenly there's like this aura around them. They kind of float down the church hallway, right? And you look at them, and the strange things happen that you kind of want to be like them. And guess what? They want you to be like them too. And there's a subtle elitism that's taking people captive. And then finally, and this is the other hard thing, verse 23 tells us that this teaching appeared to be wise. It appeared to be intellectual. 
It appeared to even be disciplined. I mean, man, if you wanted to be in the zone when it came to Christianity, you needed to be like one of these people. Because after all, these were the smart folks. These were the people who knew God. These were the people who knew their Bibles. And they were intellectual. They were disciplined. And the attractiveness of this heresy, whatever it was, was it was appealing because people wanted to be like them. Have you seen this in church? I have. I felt it. And we need to be cautious and guarded and understand what it is that Paul is concerned about because there are trappings of this that we feel and sense, even if all of it, this Colossian heresy, isn't true in our lives or in our churches today. Parts of it can be. You see, understanding these things and understanding the danger of what happens when you move Christ from the core is essential to what it really means for you to be mature. Maturity, this is my definition, maturity is not what you know. There's some really knowledgeable people that are really immature. Some people who know a lot of stuff, got a lot of history, got a lot of background, got a lot of experience, who are really immature. Immaturity is not what you know. Maturity, church, is knowing what's important. It's determining what can be eh, waffled on and what. No, we got to draw the line here. It's showing the difference between something that can be tolerated and loved and something that needs to be fought with vigor and activity and passion. It's knowing the difference between what can be uh, tolerated in the context of the church and, and what needs to say, no, I'm sorry, you can't believe that and be part of this body. That's heresy. And understanding the difference, that's maturity. Not just what you know, but knowing what's important. The Colossian heresy then was some form of hybrid blend of Judaism, Christianity, and Greek Gnosticism. What it was is it, it took the best of Christianity and then the best of Judaism in its past and the best of Gnostic philosophy out in front and it tried to merge all of those together. And Epaphras comes to the Apostle Paul deeply concerned about the way in which the Jewish roots and the Greek philosophy were compromising the very heart of the gospel. It sounded like Christianity, it smelled like Christianity, but the focus of it was more on discipline and rules and spiritual experience. It's not like the problem at Galatia, in the book of Galatians, where it was just Old Testament legalism. No, this was more personal, more spiritual, more mystical. And there's one thing that's clear in Colossians. Boil it all down, very simply, here it is. The focus on Christ shifted. That was the problem. The focus on Christ shifted. You see, it wasn't that they stopped believing in Christ. No. It wasn't that they flatly denied Him. No. The Colossian heresy was an outgrowth of what happens when Christ is no longer the core. It ultimately treated Christ with contempt, thinking that spiritual experience or regulations or discipline could somehow improve upon him. The simple equation of the verse that you memorized, Colossians 1.27, Christ in you, the hope of glory, would have been seen as very juvenile and very ignorant. What do you mean, Christ in you, the hope of glory? That's not sufficient. You've got to add this and this and this. And what happens is that by improving on Christ, the Colossian heresy was actually compromising the very doctrine that they claimed to believe. And I don't know about you, but when I hear something like that or read that or when I wrote that, I thought in my own heart, God, help me to never do that. Help me to never add something to you, Christ, to add more baggage, because you realize that in trying to protect the, 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 the positive truth by adding regulations and standards and things of that sort, that's how Phariseeism began. 
It was a, an honest attempt, maybe even initially a heartfelt attempt to try and protect the content of truth by adding man-made things. And what we fail to realize is by doing that, we actually compromise the very heart of truth itself. So this mystical, personal lifestyle, this whole thing that's going on in the book of Colossians, now I want you to hear some passages, and you're going to hear them differently now. Colossians 1.27 Paul says this, To them God chose to make known how great among the Gentiles are the riches of the glory of this mystery, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. Notice the focus, the word great, great among the Gentiles, the riches of the glory of this mystery. Paul's going right after that Colossian heresy. You think there's a mysterious kind of thing that's going on, a mysterious thing? You think there's somehow greatness in understanding? Here's what Paul says. He cuts right through all of the smoke of the Colossian heresy. You want to know greatness? You want to know something mysterious? Here it is, Christ in you, the hope of glory. That's mysterious. Go figure that out. You want to figure out what it means to be special or super spiritual? Paul says, go meditate on this. Christ in you, the hope of glory. And then look at verse uh, chapter 2 and verse 6. So moving forward, how do you grow? What do you, what do, you do? What is it that you become? Verse 6, with all this Colossian heresy in our background, here's what Paul says, Therefore, as you received Christ the Lord, so walk in Him. Does it frustrate anyone else that the simple command in obedience is this? Walk in the Spirit? <laughs> That's not very clear, is it? <laughs> I mean, it's just, what do you mean, walk in the Spirit, Lord? I, I, I preached, preached in the book of Galatians in the last two years, and you know, it's a lot easier to have you give me a, like five things real Christians do. God says, in effect, do one thing, walk in the Spirit. He says, what do you do? How do you grow? Walk in Him. Walk in Christ. And then it says, verse 7, rooted and built up in Him, established in the faith, just as you were taught, abounding in thanksgiving. So he says, look, you want to be rooted, you want to be grounded, be built up in Him. That it's the person, the work of Christ, the focal point of, of history being Him that helps people to grow in who really is the center of the universe and how they relate to Him. Paul says that's the key to spiritual growth. And then finally look at Colossians 3.1. Colossians 3.1. At issue here is the, the theological and practical centrality of Jesus. And so Paul now focuses the minds and hearts of his people in verse 1 of chapter 3. He says this, If you then have been raised with Christ, seek those things or seek the things that are above. You probably heard it said before, he's so heavenly minded, he's no what? Earthly good, right. Okay, so I long for more believers like that. I don't think the problem is that we have too many people who are so heavenly minded they're no earthly good. I think the reverse is true. I think we have so many people who are earthly minded that they're no heavenly good, right? Who are getting $2,500 back from the government this week and haven't even thought what God wants to do with that money for the advancement of the kingdom. All they've thought about is the new LCD TV, the new car payment, the new thing. They've never thought about what does God want with my money. Okay, next point, right? <laughs> Verse 2. Set your minds on things above. Think, he says, think on these things. Set your mind on these things and not on things that are on the earth. Why? Because your life is hidden with Christ in God. Hidden. It's hidden. Hear the mystery? 
here, here's focus on, on, on who Christ is, but how we are affected by that. The question that then begs to be asked through the book of Colossians and through the analysis of the Colossian heresy is this. When it really comes down to your own soul, your own heart, and the practical way in which you live, how central is Jesus Christ really in your life? I mean, really. Not just what you say on Sunday, not just what you sing, not just what you do in terms of what happens here. This is pretty easy. You listen, you you, you take notes, you go out there. That's where you got to figure out how to apply the centrality of Christ. we got to figure out how to do it with kids, like Don mentioned in the Next Generation's ministries, and and how to be able to deal with our own hearts and, and what we think about and how to imply that at work. That's the real battle. What does it mean for Jesus to be core and have that really transform our lives. Which brings us back then to our title. Welcome to Colossae USA. I think that when I look at the book of Colossae, I see things about our own culture that to me are a little scary. Not that surprising, but are kind of sobering when I look at the book of Colossians. Because there are things going on in the Colossian heresy that, that I see reflected in our own culture. And then also we're going to look at how those are reflected even in our own lives. I don't know what started it or how it came about or even if I have the timing right, but somehow about seven or eight years ago, our culture, maybe it was around September 11th, somehow developed a growing interest in being spiritual. Case in point being, if you're running for the office of presidency, you better be spiritual, at least at some level. It's not politically expedient for someone to stand up there and say, do you, are you religious? Say, no, I'm not religious at all. I'm not spiritual at all. I don't have any beliefs about anything spiritual. That would be political suicide. So it seems to me to be very interesting that in our present culture, spiritualism or being spiritual is in, but you know what's out? Religion is out. So being spiritual is hot, but believing in the person of Christ That's dangerous. And I'm going to suggest this morning that in our culture that we have, I think we've been way beyond a post-Christian culture in America. I I think that happened years and years and years ago, that we now live in an environment that's increasingly hostile to the gospel, not hostile to spiritual things, but hostile to this truth, that there's only one way for a person to be right with God, and that one way is the person and work of Christ, and that's it. That message right there, that's not popular. Spirituality, that's popular, but not the cross. And I think if there's anything that's going to create persecution of the church in America, it's going to be that truth. Not that we're spiritual, not that we're religious, not that we go to church. I don't see that going away for a long time. But what I do see going away is the ability to say this statement without having it be illegal. The only way to heaven and a right relationship with God is through Christ and Christ alone. Do you realize that um, in just... Do you realize that only five miles away from this church is a store? I came out of a, a restaurant and saw it. New Age People Store. Uh, the website gives this slogan, products and services for all spiritual paths. I was talking with our staff about this on Tuesday and said, can you send me any examples of this that you kind of feel and, or find in our present-day culture? And they sent me a bunch of things. One of them was this, this book called The Secret by Rhonda Byrne. I think I'm pronouncing that name right. How many of you heard of this book? Okay, number three on the New York Times bestseller. Number three, a, a, a new movie film that's coming out. Here's 
Here is what the, um, the profile on Amazon.com says about this book. Listen to it. And listen for the Colossian heresy. The secret reveals the most powerful law in the universe. The knowledge of this law has run like a golden thread through the lives and teachings of all prophets, seers, sages, and saviors in the world's history, and through the lives of all truly great men and women. All that they have ever accomplished or attained has been done in full accordance with this most powerful law. Without exception, every human being has the ability to transform any weakness or suffering into strength, power, peace, health, and abundance. Rhonda Byrne's discovery of the secret began with a glimpse of the truth through a 100-year-old book. She went back to the centuries, tracing and uncovering a common truth that lay at the core of the most powerful philosophies, teachings, and religions in the world. The secret explains with simplicity the law that is governing all lives and offers the knowledge of how to create intentionally and effortlessly a joyful life. This is the secret to everything, the secret to unlimited happiness, love, health, and prosperity. This is the secret to life. This is the secret to death. That's the contrast. That's not the secret to life. That's death. And people who believe that, devoid of Christ, will wake up in a Christless eternity. You could also cite another recent book called The Third Jesus by a man named Deepak Chopra. Chopra, thank you, Chopra. The summary of his book reads this way. In the, third D, in the third Jesus, best-selling author and spiritual leader Deepak Chopra provides a challenge to current systems of belief and a fresh perspective on what Jesus can teach all of us regardless of our religious background. He says there are three Jesuses. The first is the historical Jesus, the one who lived 2,000 years ago, whose teachings are the foundation of Christian theology. Next, there's Jesus, the Son of God, who has come to embody an institutional religion with specific dogma, a priesthood and devout believers. By the way, that's us. And finally, there's the third Jesus, the cosmic Christ, the spiritual guide whose teaching embraces all humanity, not just the church built in his name. No, he speaks to the individual who wants to find God as a personal experience to attain what some might call grace or God consciousness or enlightenment. Christianity needs to overcome its tendency to be exclusionary and refocus on being a religion of personal insight and spiritual growth. In this way, Jesus can be seen for the universal teacher he really is, someone whose teachings of compassion and tolerance and understanding can be embraced by all of us. After the service, somebody told me that they saw this even recently on American Idol. Apparently at the end of one of their... um, um, fundraising events, they sang the song, uh, Shout to the Lord, and got to the middle verse, and suddenly the name Jesus disappeared, and they replaced it with the word shepherd. It changed the wording, because Jesus is offensive. But didn't our Lord tell us that? <laughs> that the cross is a stumbling block? It's, it's foolishness of the Greeks, a, a stumbling block to the Jews? You see, the reality is, our culture is spiritual, but to name the name of Christ, that's... That's controversial. Let me show you a video clip that uh, one of our staff sent me from the uh, Oprah Winfrey show from a number of years ago. Guys, go ahead and roll the clip. One of the mistakes that human beings make is believing that there is only one way to live and that we don't accept that there are diverse ways of being in the world, that there are millions of ways 
to be a human being. And, and many ways, no, but many paths to what you call God. And her path might be something else, and when she gets there, she might call it the light. But her loving and her kindness and her generosity brings her, if it brings her to the same point that it brings you, it doesn't matter whether she called it God along the way or not. And I guess the danger that could be in that, I mean, it, it sounds great on the onset, but if you really look at both sides, there could possibly, possibly be just one way. What, what about Jesus? What about Jesus? She went to preaching, didn't she? <laughs> See, this is the world that we live in right now. We live in a world that's increasingly open to spirituality, but a decreasing tolerance for the exclusive claims of Christ. One of our college students wrote this, I think overall it's pretty easy to tell people I attend church or a Bible study, but actually talking about Christ, that I have a relationship with Him, that He's changed my life, is much harder and much less socially acceptable. It seems to be that the world is more comfortable with hearing about how a person has found peace through Buddhism, through prayer to a general God or gods, even just within themselves, but Jesus makes them uncomfortable. So we live in a world in a world that has this focus of spirituality, but absent of focus on Christ. And so this morning, if you've come here today and you're trying to figure out spirituality, and this was part of your journey, you came to the right place, because we're going to point you to the only one who can really change your heart, and that's Jesus. But then there's the second thing that just got lodged in my soul. But the problem isn't just about our culture, unless we think it's all about them Many times, folks, it's also about us when we develop a Christless Christianity. Let me explain what I mean by this. It's taking Christianity and we, as we know it and over time allowing something else to become the center. Maybe not theologically, but practically. Something else becomes the focal point. Something else becomes the seat of our affections. That well, we, we came to Christ because of Christ. We came to the church because of Christ. But once we got there, then programs and ministry and activity begins to take over. And before we know it, our functional reality of how we live looks very Christless. C.S. Lewis, in his book, Screwtape Letters, it's a collection of fictitious letters between Satan, Uncle Screwtape, and his minion uh, nephew named Wormwood... C.S. Lewis describes how, how Screwtape deviously suggests that Wormwood shouldn't do a frontal assault on Christians, but rather employ a strategy, listen, of distraction. Rather than clumsily announce your presence by direct attacks, you should try to get the church to become interested in Christianity and... Christianity and, Christianity and the war, Christianity and poverty, Christianity and morality, and so on. Now, you need to know, C.S. Lewis is not saying that we shouldn't be concerned about things like the war, poverty, or morality, and nor am I saying in any way that the church should in any way back up from its influence in family values and social justice and political issues and community transformation. The danger, though, hear me, is when those things begin to eclipse Christ when we confuse fruit with the root, when our church becomes more known for what we do than the Savior who we believe in. 
We need to balance love and grace with a commitment to Christ. And the church ought to always have a dual purpose, both to exalt Christ and to love God and love one another. But oftentimes the church begins to tip one way and we lose the person and work of Christ. There's a little bit of the rich young ruler in all of us. We miss the very heart of the gospel when we begin not to deny the gospel. We just add so many things to it that it no longer really is the source or trust or hope of our lives. So the problem in Christless Christianity is not one of denial. No, it's one of addition, of distraction and emphasis. Listen to how Michael Horton puts it. Christless Christianity can be promoted in context where either the sermon is a lecture on timeless doctrine and ethics or Christ gets lost in the word studies and applications. Christ gets lost in churches where activity and self-expression, the hype of worship experiences and programs replace the ordinary ministry of hearing and receiving Christ as he's given us in the means of grace. Christ gets lost when he is promoted as the answer to everything but our condemnation, death, and tyranny of sin, or as the means to the end of more excitement, amusement, or better living. Do you see the problem? I feel it. It happens to me. I know that for me, I can get so fixed on ministry forms like like Bible study and church work and the rhythm of ministry that it's possible for me to serve Jesus without savoring Jesus. Confession, I'm behind on my Bible reading plan. Some by neglect and some by just the reality of wanting to go some other places in the scripture. And I'm trying to climb back up my Bible reading plan mountain. So I'm doing, trying to do two readings a day. And I found myself asking, Mark, are you doing this to check a box? Or are you doing this because you want to meet with Christ? That's what happens to us. Or when it comes to counseling, it's that we've got all the answers and all the problems are basically the same and you've got the same verses and so the reality is we end up giving people more about our opinions and less of a focus on really having them meet the Savior. Jesus changes people's lives, not my outline. Exposition can become all about original languages and parsing and grammatical historical method and not about savoring the beauty of a risen Christ. Evangelism can become about methodologies and decisions and not about how to introduce people to one who can really meet their needs and change their hearts. Congregational worship for me can be about my emotional response, my feelings and musical taste and not about really basking in the light of my Savior. Educating my kids can become about raising obedient children who they know the content of Bible stories, but do they know how to connect David and Goliath to the cross? Do they know the connection? Do they know what it was when Jesus said to his disciples that he walked them all the way through the Old and Old Testament showing them how all of this pointed them to Christ? And working on my marriage can be more about just wanting to get along with Sarah or my own happiness than really diving deep into what it means for me to love her like Christ loved the church. You see, my problem, probably not unique to me, is that I don't deny Christ. No, I don't do that. My problem is I don't guard my heart from using Him to get what I want. My problem is that I can too easily fall in love with the things that were supposed to be leading me to Christ. I love the carrier of Christ instead of Christ. Let me illustrate this for you. Show you the absurdity of it. Imagine that you walk into the um, foyer area. You're a 
proud new dad. You got a new baby boy in a beautiful um, car seat, and you're walking in with your lovely wife. First Sunday back from the hospital, and I see you out in the hallway. I say your name is Jim. I say, oh, Jim, congratulations, man. Got a new baby, man. Oh, praise the Lord. You set the baby down. You greet my hand. You grab my hand, and I walk over to you, and I say, dude, that is a beautiful car seat, right? And I miss the kid in the car seat. And as silly and as stupid and ridiculous as that is, you need to understand that neglecting the Savior is a thousand times more foolish and infinitely more tragic. It's tragedy when our Bible reading doesn't create intimacy with Christ, when we have good counseling but no focus on Jesus, when we have powerful preaching but we neglect the gospel or excellent worship and no one's captivated with Christ. We have effective evangelism, but we haven't pushed people to really bend the knee to who Jesus is. Or we have marriages that last 50 years. The goal of marriage is not just to have it last for 50 years. The goal of marriage is so it's a platform to tell the world about Christ. You see, Jesus, when he isn't the core, it becomes all of a wrong focus. And in the midst of a culture that's intoxicated with spirituality, but offended by Christ, we need to hear and receive that when Christless Christianity takes root, the message that we have begins to be compromised. And that's why this morning, if you're here searching for spiritual things, the best thing I could offer you would not be the programs, the Bible studies, the staff, the small groups, the counseling of College Park, as wonderful as they are. Those are all the means. Listen, the best thing that I can offer you is a sinless Savior named Jesus who absorbed the wrath of God for your sin on the cross because he's the only one who can grant you the one thing that nobody else can, and that is forgiveness. And so College Park, in the midst of a choppy water culture with lots of spirituality and lots of offense at the cross, in the midst of a culture that we get to do a lot of things in the name of Jesus, let's be sure that we don't ever forget that there's only one person that makes it all happen, only one person that it's worth doing it for, and there's only one person that's at the center of it all. His name is Jesus, and he's the core. He's the core. And so, risen Christ, we want that to be true. And yet we know. I know that it's not at times. I know, Lord, I can take the very best stuff of all the gifts that you give, and I can pervert them in my desire, and I can take all the great stuff that you give, and I can make it about me and not about you. Good things like marriage and money and kids, and I can pervert it in a second. So would you help us? Help us to just hear what you're saying right now? In College Park, well, music's playing in the background, and the Spirit of God just speaks to your heart. Something jumps in your heart, isn't it, when you hear Jesus is the core? Here's the question I have. Where is he not like that? Would you receive the conviction of the Spirit right now and say, Lord, I want you to be core in this area. I love my wife, but you're not core there. I just I do the Bible stuff so she'll be happy with me. I don't just want obedient kids. I want kids who treasure Christ. I don't just want to do vacation Bible school. I want people to know and fall in love with you, Jesus. Whatever it is that God is by His Spirit placing His finger on, don't resist that. And dear friend, if you've never trusted Christ today, 
you're on a spiritual path trying to figure things out, even now you could just pour your heart out to the Savior and say, Lord Jesus, I give up. I'm done with me. I cling to you, O Christ. Stand together with me, please. And so we thank you, Jesus, that it's Christ in us, the hope of glory. Thank you that it's you, Jesus, in us that is our hope, our hope of anything. We rest in you today. To them, God chose to make known how great among the Gentiles are the riches of this glory, of this mystery which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. And all God's people said, Amen. Amen.